Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I'm Carrie Miller. I've been musing about what Harper Lee is making of all of the celebrations this year on the 50th anniversary of her groundbreaking novel. I would imagine that she's pleased that the book endures with a wingspan, as Scott Turow put it, that still inspires 13-year-olds and blue-haired ladies and men with calloused hands to read it. But she might also be a bit wary because she knows this anniversary has raised all of those pesky questions again. Why is she so quiet down there in Monroeville? Why doesn't she talk about the book anymore? Not even to Oprah. And most of all, why wasn't there another novel after Mockingbird? How could she have stopped there? And they are interesting questions, but in some ways they're besides the point. Don't we really want to know how it is that this novel written about a little girl in a small town with the equivocal ending still has a truth to tell 50 years later? Mary McDonough Murphy's new book shines a light on that. She writes in her introduction that when she finished reading To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time, I carried my paperback copy around with me for weeks I needed to stay in its thrall. Her new book is titled Scout, Atticus, and Boo, a celebration of 50 years of To Kill a Mockingbird. Please give her a warm welcome. So I, I am going to ask you some of those questions that I raised. The pesky ones. Yeah, the, the yeah. pesky <laughs> ones, right. But what, what do you think Harper Lee, uh, you know, faces all of this press again and all this, uh, this attention that's being paid to To Kill a Mockingbird? What do I think she thinks? Yes. Well, without speaking to her directly, I, it's, hard, it's hard to say. I, I do know that... Um, from speaking to her sister. She has an older sister, Alice Finchley, 99, still at her desk every day at Barrett Bug and Lee, which is the <laughs> law firm her father founded uh, in Monroeville, that, that I think they all in the family sort of view the novel with detachment now. I mean, it happened 50 years ago. It was this overwhelming success. But now they kind of look upon it as a little bit bemused, uh, you know, like it took flight and off it went, and it's that book that Nell Harper did all those years ago. The family thinks this, but, but what do you think Harper Lee actually thinks of it? I can't, it's hard for me to say, not having not spoken to her, I, it, it would be, I think, I mean, I think it's certainly an achievement, and I, I'm sure she's glad she wrote it, but beyond that, it's, it's, it would be hard for me to speculate without talking to her directly. And did you, as so many other writers and journalists and everybody else attempt to get an interview with her? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. And um, she's, you know, Harper Lee has famously not spoken to the press since 1964. And, um, and many, many requests came to her and were returned with the words, hell no, scrawled across the top. <laughs> so um, I didn't receive one of those, but I, I met with her agent. I explained what I was up to and he said, you know, good, good luck, young lady. <laughs> when I read that story that Oprah had had lunch with her, and even Oprah couldn't get the interview, and then Oprah said at some point in the lunch, she decided she didn't want her to give her the interview, well, uh, right? Yeah, when I talked to Oprah, I mean, Oprah said, I knew within five 
minutes that I would never get her on my show. And then we had two or three hours together. It was like we were best girlfriends. And so by then, Harper Lee must have been about 70 when she met Oprah for lunch at the Four Seasons in New York. And Oprah's very, very funny, was very funny when I talked to her, because she's like, oh, Harper Lee, what do you give her for lunch? What do you do? <laughs> why, why do you think she came to the conclusion that it was better that Harper Lee end up not coming on the show to talk about it? I, I think that, I think, you know, Harper Lee took a stand and, and, and she decided not to talk to the press anymore. And not talking to the press anymore shouldn't necessarily be con shouldn't be confused with being a reckless. I mean, she is not holed up like Boo Radley. She's not sitting in her house and not coming out or or venturing only to get the mail the way J.D. Salinger did. She's led a very full, rich life filled with people and family and friends and trips to museums and ball games and and restaurants. And so. Um, you know, it's 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 easy to think of her as a reckless, but she's really, she's not. And so I think for somebody like Oprah, and she said it was sort of similar to the to her experience meeting Jackie O. And of course, Oprah gets to meet everybody. But um, you know, you, you as time goes on, you put your request in, it keeps coming back no. Anna Quinlan said this as well she, when she was a reporter. You, you start to admire it after a while. I mean, it, it, as Mark Childress told me when I interviewed him. You know, it's kind of blasphemy in this country not to worship at the altar of publicity. And <laughs> and she, you know, she said, "No, I'm done. I'm done. And thank you very much. I, I've given you what I what I'm going to give you. And you know, and, and as time goes on, you, you kind of some people sort of feel, oh, okay, good for you, Harper Lee. You just stay put. You know. One of the things I I really got a kick out of in in the introduction of your book was that as you started putting out interview requests and people were starting to say yes, you started asking yourself, are they really going to have anything new to say? Be careful what I wish for. Now all these people are willing to talk about this book. What but, you found was so much insight. And that was the biggest surprise to me. I mean, as I'm, as I'm rounding the bend for my 21st interview, my 22nd interview, I'm going to see John Meacham, who's the biographer, and, you know, and I'm, and, and Wally Lamb and all these people, and I'm thinking, what new, what new thing is someone going to tell me that I haven't heard before? And invariably, somebody had something new to say, and whether it was Roseanne Cash extolling the novel as a parenting manual, which is the first thing she said was, you, you should read it as a parenting manual, that's what it is, or Wally Lamb saying that it taught him how to write a novel, or James Patterson saying that he really studied the suspense so he could try to emulate it in his novels. I mean, everybody, or Tom Brokaw, talking about life in a really tiny town and how he, it resonated with him. Everyone had something to say. And I think that that's really, when you talked earlier about the enduring nature of the book, I, I'm very hard pressed to name another novel that strikes that, that many chords in that many different people. I mean, it's about so many things. It's about love. It's about loneliness. It's about childhood. And of course, it's about justice and tolerance. Um, and so I think it speaks many different ways to, to lots of different people. And that is one of the reasons it has the wingspan that it does. Scott Turow yeah. talks about, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought the passages from James McBride were just among the most enlightening of the people that you talk to. He, he's a novelist and a composer, wonderful writer. He's thought really deeply in his books and in his music about race and, and the ideas of racial justice. 
And, and he says about To Kill a Mockingbird, it's a great book now, it was a great book yesterday, it will be a great book tomorrow, and that it has this kind of integrity that has endured. I think that's really something, Mary, because that a book that was written about race 50 years ago still speaks to someone like him is, is amazing. I think, and I think that's, I mean, it's the truth of that book and it's the writing of that book that, that really speaks to him too. And, I, and, you know, he of course wrote that incredible memoir, The Color of Water, which was about growing up with his white mother. And I, you know, the first line of To Kill a Mockingbird is when he was nearly 13, my brother Jim cut it, broke his arm badly at the elbow. And James McBride's first line of his memoir is very much an homage, I think, to that, which is when I was 14, my mother started to ride a bicycle. So it's about, you know, encapsulating everything in that first paragraph. And, and you know, he's a person who, who, for whom books, I think, meant everything when he was growing up in Queens. And he said it was the first time that he read a novel that was sophisticated about race in any way. And, is, and, and for it to be a novel by a white writer, white writer was, I think, very surprising for him. Did you, did you wonder, though, as you, you, know, as you knew you were going to talk to African-American writers, what they would say about the, the racial aspect of this? Well, I mean, James McBride uh, very, very clearly states that he would never call Harper Lee brave. I mean, that other people call her brave, and that he, but he would not, um, he would not use that adjective. He's, he basically said, I think she did the best with how she was raised. Um, because, you know, in his opinion, many of the black characters are not three-dimensional or fall, fall short, comparatively speaking. So, um, you know, I was interested to hear him say that, but in the same breath, he also said, hey, I wish I wrote the novel. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> you know. Did a lot of people say that? Well, oh, I would I, have loved to have had my name on that, right, on that well, cover. Sure. I mean, and of course, if you're only going to write one novel, why not let it be this one? <laughs> <laughs> um, to continue on that theme, though, for a minute of race, I, I thought Diane McWhorter said something really interesting to you about that. She, she makes the distinction that she thinks Harper Lee makes as well between racism and the racist themselves. Tell me where she, how she draws the line. Uh, Di well, Diane says that the novel is, of course, an incredible indictment of race, racism, but not of the racist. And when you think of characters in the novel, like Miss, even Mrs. DuBose, who you may or may not remember, is the, the Confederate widow who you know, is really a racist and says horrible things and is the one who is so upset about Atticus defending a black man and makes it very, very clear. I mean, the, the, the fact is that was the system. I mean, there was racism embedded in the system. It's how people grew. It, it was the normal. One person said to me, you know, that everyone took in racism with their mother's milk. It was the system. You know, it's, it's, it's what you knew. And so the thing that I think was so instructive about To Kill a Mockingbird, especially for white Southerners, was it gave them a chance to question the system because it was told through the eyes of a child who refused to see things in black and white and it allowed them to think and, and, and perhaps be morally disturbed about the universe in which they were living. How carefully do you think Harper Lee thought about that as she was conceiving the novel? Uh, that's of course one of the things I'd love to ask her, which is, you know, to what, how much was race, you know, at the forefront of your of your mind when you were writing this 
novel because it's also a great novel of childhood right. and and some people don't even read it as a novel of race. So yes, I would I, I would love to know you know what what was front and center when she was putting it together. Because if it had been front and center, maybe maybe it didn't have to be told from the child's point of view. And yet she, she is so innocent. She's naive. She's open and receptive to the lessons, and, and she has that child sense of right and wrong. Well, Scout's world is a just world, which is why she's so confused by the world she's encountering. I'm interested in what you thought about what Scott Turow said about the wingspan of this. I thought he put that so well, and, and why it is that that is still true 50 years later. I think, I, I mean, again, it's, it's, um, it, it wasn't just that I wondered, you know, what would anybody have something new to say to me? The other thing I did as I went around, because this started as a documentary, so I was with a camera crew, um, I asked everyone when I finished interviewing them to please read their favorite passage from the novel. And there were very few repetitions. Funny. People endless read very different parts of the novel. I mean, of course, Stand Up, Miss Jean Louise, Your Father's Passing was read more than once. Um, but But there were very few repetitions, and again, I think it is it is, it is this novel with indelible character, incredible writing, unbelievably suspenseful plot when you think about it, because Boo Radley keeps creeping around, you keep coming back to him, and it has this important social statement to make without being preachy, which is also a very important point. I just, I mean, I think that that all of those things combine to give it its staying power. And it's, and as Scott Rowe also said when I talked to him, it still tells a story we know is true. I know that that's, I mean, that struck me as well. What, what does he mean by that? That well, I think he, I think he means that as long as there's racial profiling or clan activity, which there still is, or any kind of intolerance um, or refusal to, you know, walk in someone else's shoes, which Atticus so famously says, as long as those things still, you know, exist. I mean, in 300 years, maybe people look at this novel and say, hey, what are they talking about? But, <laughs> you know, for, for, for now, it's to, it still does resonate um, because, because it's true. You anticipated my question. You and I are not going to be around probably <laughs> when they hit the, and, and I bet most of our audience won't either, when they hit the century mark for the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird. But, but how, you know, how does it endure, how does it stand up? 50 years from now, do you think? I, I think it's still gonna be there. I mean, I, and, and, and again, I, it's because I'm hard pressed to come up with a, another novel that, that does what this does. You know, I, I, I could be wrong, but I mean, it's still, it's still a perfect book to be reading when you're in eighth and ninth grade, and, and also, again, when you're an adult. So. You know, I ask you that, though, because th there is so much speculation that as the generations go on, race becomes less and less important, and so... Well, I followed two eighth grade classes while I was doing the documentary, one in a suburb of New York City and the other smack dab in the middle of the country in Hamilton, Ohio, and what really struck me about the kids... Re I mean, I, I was interested to hear uh, girls respond to Scout because you know, I don't think that Scout means as much to them as it did um, to Trish, who made the, or to you, or to me, or to Anna Quinlan, or any other, because, because there are many, the girls have had many examples of Scout, of girls who wear 
overalls and speak their mind and kick and scream and carry on. Um, so I, so I found that eighth grade girls didn't, they liked her, but they didn't cleave to her the way other, other women may have in earlier generations. But invariably, the kids all saw it as a novel of judgment. And it was a time in their lives when they were learning to form judgments and make judgments and think a lot about, not just, and not just about race, but about class, which, which that novel also does, beautifully delineates class. And they were very, very thoughtful and articulate about judgment. And it's about how you form judgment. And, and they wanted to talk about that quite a lot. How do you judge Bob Ewell? Is he a total lunatic? Are you supposed to feel sorry for him? You know, I mean, they, and, they, and they took it all very, very seriously and considered it and chewed it over a lot. And so I was very impressed by them and by the way they treated the novel. You're listening to a Westminster Town Hall Forum discussion with author Mary McDonough Murphy. She's the author of a new book and film celebrating 50 years of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I'm Carrie Miller. Doesn't Anna Quinlan uh, say in, in the book, and I assume in the film, that she could have cared less about Atticus, <laughs> that for her, it, has, it always was and it always will be about Scout? Yeah, she, she uh, yeah, she was she that was she said I don't give a rip about Atticus. <laughs> I only care about him in as much as he's nice to scout. You know? <laughs> Why is that, do you think? I, I think I think, you know, she she was just uh, she was all for Scout. Scout was hilarious. Everything about Scout was what she was interested in and she really wasn't interested in any other characters except in how they related to Scout. And I mean, it certainly was true my first reading of the novel when I was in my teens, I mean, I was completely down for Scout. I was in the tank for Scout. <laughs> I didn't, you know, besotted. And so when I did read it a second time, I kept thinking, did I read this? Where, where was I? Because I had, I had missed all so many great parts, or at least had forgotten so many great things about the book. You know, one of the things I wondered, I went back and read it uh, a couple of years ago for, I guess, the fourth time, because we were doing it for our mid-morning book club. I had the same experience. I, I felt like suddenly I had new eyes for, for the voices of the other characters. But then I wondered how much of our love of the novel is about that nostalgia that I know I have for those early experiences of reading where you, it's that moment of discovery as to what a book can be. And that book delivers that. When you, yeah, I, I mean, I think for many young readers, it's the first time you are just kidnapped by a novel. And in fact, you you can almost ask into a person, they will tell people will tell you where they were, what was going on in their lives when they read *To Kill a Mockingbird*. I mean, in somebody like Wally Lamb, the novelist, he'll tell you what color the lampshade was in his <laughs> sister's room when he stole the paperback off her bedside table. And you know, frequently people sit and don't get up again until they're done, which for I think young readers is just unheard of as a reading experience too. You described it as I said in the introduction as not wanting to let go of the paperback because you wanted to remain in its thrall. I just I loved that. So tell me about. I well, still carry the paperback around. That. I do. I mean, well, that was actually my second reading. That was my adult reading, and I carried the paperback around, and I still carry it around. Not all the time. I've read it quite a lot by now. But um, you know, you can. I, I I I urge you all just open it up and find two sentences. They will. You will either 
they will be two sentences that you've forgotten or that are written so beautifully you just can't get over it or that are so hilarious you have to keep reading. I mean, it, every time I think, at least for me, when you open that novel, it rewards you every single time. We put the audience to the test and ask who's read the novel in the last five years? Just a show of hands. Wow, excellent. Some of you, I hope, will ask some questions later on about that. See, that, that's, and I think that's also a rare thing to go back to a novel that was so important in your childhood and believe that you will be able to find something new. Well, they don't always hold up so well. Right, that's, I right. I mean, that's really, Absolutely. I mean, for me, Catcher in the Rye didn't do it when I read it a second time. You know, I kept saying, uh, Holden was great when I was 14, but this is not working for me now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, I, I think there are very few novels you can return to and, and, get, and get even more out of. And it's a great thing to do as you get, it's a great thing to do with your children. I mean, it's a great thing to do with your book club later. I mean, it, I think that's another reason why we're still talking about it and why it's still selling a million copies a year. Is it really yes, a million, a million a copies still? a year? Uh huh. Also, because teachers are assigning it. Right. And I assume right. you approve of that. I yes, mean, you, I do. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm interested in fleshing out a little mo bit more about what Roseanne Cash told you because that's. I had not ever thought of it that way until she talked to you about how it, it gave her some very fundamental ideas of what it means to be a parent. Well, I think, I mean, what struck her, and, and it's it certainly once you become a parent, and you, if you become a parent, you read it again, you, you are thinking, I think, about the kind of father that Atticus is. And it is a quintessential American family, even though it's not a typical American family. Right. Um, but, but the, that kind of trust and mutual respect and understanding that Atticus has with his children, it's very, very beautiful when you read it. I mean, it's, he really has a kind of acceptance and, and again, respect for his children that, that you know, when, when, when you look at it again, you think, hmm, I should try a little of that. You know? <laughs> Which one of your interviewees said, I wanted a father? Oh, everybody. Like, oh, they I, did? Oh, oh, I mean, somebody, I forget who it was. I think it was Diane McWhorter who finally said, everybody wants a father like Atticus, <laughs> and nobody has one. <laughs> <laughs> is there a point in that, though? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the, I mean, is he, I mean, you've seen the criticism, and I want to delve into a little bit of that with you, but is there something about Atticus that he's simply too good to be true and so not a truly authentic character? I, well, I, people say that. I mean, he's a, he's a paragon among paragons, and yes, he's even the best shot in the county, you know, to top it all off. And handsome. Um, he's handsome, and all the ladies in the neighborhood love him. <laughs> um, but, but I think he is a complicated figure. I don't think he's a cardboard cut out um how is he creature well then? i mean he you know he he didn't crusade or ask for that case he was assigned that case i mean i think i think people like to think of him as this crusading civil rights attorney this was the 30s he was assigned the case and you know he he had he wrestles with a lot of elements of it and especially what's going to happen to his children he's not just marching firmly forward, doing what's right all the time, it's not an easy thing for him either. But do you get the idea that he's initially conflicted, or do you think that he clearly sees from the beginning 
you know, what the, what the right and wrong is of this? I think in the beginning, it's, he, 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 at some point, I, can't, I don't have the language that uh, you, you sort, he sort of wishes that maybe the judge had passed him by on this one because of what it's going to entail. I think he knows what he has to do. And, and, and that's what makes it so exceptional is that he has to do it. I mean, you know, it, the, the, what, what he does is he vigorously defends him. It's not, you know, other people could have taken the case and, and gone through the motions. Through the motions. Right. Yeah. right. Um, I know you read the critique, I'm sure you did, a, a few years ago in, was it the New Yorker piece by Thomas Mallon? He says, I'd be happy to arm wrestle him to the ground, by okay. the way. I wish he was here. Yeah. That would be great <laughs> to see. Um, he says the character of, I mean, this, this spurred a lot of really interesting discussion that I went back and read before this. Um, characters like Atticus, implausible, comes off as a plaster saint. Scout, he says, reads like, quote, a highly constructed doll, feisty and cute on every subject from algebra to grown-ups. Zing. Yeah, well, I yeah, um, he, I think there's uh, always going to be a, a sort of bar or group of people that, who, who are either very academic or very cynical, perhaps, but who attack To Kill a Mockingbird as a work of literature, you know, or because it has a perhaps feel-good sensibility. People like to go after it um, for its sentimentality, but, you know, I... I just don't see how you can't call it a work of literature. I mean, I, I don't, it's, it's I, I, I could defend it any number of ways, but sentimental books are also works of literature, and this isn't the only one out there. Um, what, what do you think he didn't get about the novel? For whatever reason, um, well, it's what we were talking about earlier. I don't think he saw Atticus as a complicated figure at all. And um, and to him, it was kind of wooden and and cardboard cutout, when in fact, I think there's much more nuance here. He also went after Harper Lee for some dangling modifiers, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, it is it is fair to say, and, and I got this on, I think, the last reading, that I did of it, that Scout does have an immense amount of wisdom beyond her years. Well, doesn't it's it? a very tricky narration because she's an adult, but she and looking back, but she's looking at things through the eyes of a child, and that is, I mean, lots of people have tried that and really failed at it. It's very, really very difficult, difficult, right? Yeah, I wonder yeah. why she chose that that way. I, again, I'm not. To I, do it this. probably chose her. I'm not sure. You know. I'm sure she, I, I'm sure she had the voice and 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 stuck with the voice that she had. I mean, I don't I don't know. But are there places where you say would Scout have really had those kinds of you know insights? Except that it's the adult looking back and remembering being looking through the kid's eyes. So it's I mean it's a little complicated, but it but I think it's very successful. I'm not going to get you to yeah. say one thing that, <laughs> that isn't great about To Kill a Mockery. And, and no, I think it's hard. I mean, I'm not, I, 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 I think it's a very complicated, a very difficult feat for, for a narration. And I, on balance, I think it's very well done. So. One, of, one of the people that you talked to was Mary Badham, yeah. who played Scout 
in the film. It, it, you, you did a wonderful interview. We talked to her a couple of years ago. Her vitality and her memory yeah. for the detail. Well, but what I found very funny about talking to Mary Batum is Mary Batum was a nine-year-old child on the set of that movie. And so you would, you would say to her, um, so Mary, you're on the swing with Gregory Peck and he's saying, Scout, do you know what a compromise is? And what do you remember about that scene? And she'd say, <laughs> We know the freeway was really crowded that day, and <laughs> my mother, my mother wanted to get home. And you know, you sort of forget that she was a nine-year-old kid, and so a lot of her—I mean, some of her memories are from pictures that she saw of herself on the set. Um, but I, and I think it took her quite a long time to realize that she'd been involved in something extraordinary because she was a little kid, and it was playtime running around that set. She had never been an actor. You know, that they were cast because they were fantastic Southern children. One of the things when we talked to her a couple years ago, she said was that she had never read the novel as a child, as a teen. I know, I couldn't believe it, as a teenager. And finally, I think a teacher, what, shamed her into it? Yeah, well, it was her daughter's teacher. That's right, that's right. right. Who said she was getting ready to go to her daughter's class, and the, and he said, you'll, so you'll want to talk about the novel, and she said, er, uh, you know, haven't read the novel. <laughs> How so could that be? She well, she said that she loved the movie and everything she thought you needed to know was up there on the screen, and you know what? Why mess with a beautiful thing? So, I, but I but I I know from talking to her that the novel opened up all these other avenues and she, all these people she didn't even know existed, all these characters she'd never even heard of. Mrs. Tootie, Mrs. Fruity, Dolphus Raymond, all these people that were in the book, she of course didn't even know they existed. So. You're listening to a Westminster Town Hall Forum conversation with Mary McDonough Murphy about a new book that she's got about the 50 years of celebration since the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird. Did, did you decide first that you would make a, a film yeah. and do the book? How did Started as a documentary, um, because I'm, that's what I do. I mean, I was a TV producer and I make documentaries. And um, when I got the idea, it started, it started the idea was to do a documentary. Um, the more I went around and got all this incredible material, the more I knew I couldn't fit it, stuff it all into a 78-minute feature. So I went to HarperCollins, where I, and very happily, the, the, they're the publishers of To Kill a Mockingbird, so I went to an editor at HarperCollins and said, I think I have a book in all of this, and he happily said, yes, I believe you do, so that's how that happened. Uh, again, the irony of that, that you starting out are saying, what are they all going to say if I got too much, and then you find out you've got enough for a wonderful film, I presume, I can't wait to see it, and then these great insights yeah. in yeah. the book, yeah. too. I, I wanted to talk to you about wh how you, since you are a filmmaker yourself, how you, uh, you know, what your perception is of the, the film. Oh, well. Uh, yes, of To Kill a Mockingbird and the book, not who did it better. Well, you can't say who did it better. I think that they're both, I think this is very rare, they're both masterpieces. And that, so rare, and isn't that it? And that usually doesn't happen. Usually a good book is a not so good movie or a bad book is a better movie, but th these are both masterpieces. Um, and, you know, Horton Foote wrote that screenplay. It's, it's considered one of the best screen adaptations of all time. And um, it's just a beautifully done movie. And you, the, they're very different, both of them, but they are both great. 
And Harper Lee had a very good experience. I was going to ask you yeah. about that. She had a great experience going to Hollywood, and um, the set designer said that wrote a letter saying that she came out and was on the set, and she would walk around with him because he had painstakingly replicated the courthouse of her hometown, and they built it on a back lot in California. But she, Harper Lee would walk around with him and go that lamp would never be there, you know? <laughs> and, and they'd move it? And they'd move it, or they'd find a new right. dresser or a new chair, depending on what she thought was, what should have been in the room. So he, he said, he credits her with helping him win the Oscar for art direction. So. What, what, what's the, is there a story um, behind Horton Foote's, you know, writing of this? What, what a, what a challenge. Yeah, he, well, the, both, but Alan Pakula and Robert Mulligan were two immensely talented people. Um, Pakula was a producer of this movie before he went on to be the director of other movies like Sophie's Choice and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Um, Mulligan had done a bunch of movies and they, had vi they were very clear about what they wanted to do. And Horton Foote, they told Horton Foote to read Huck Finn and think about that which they, and think about Scout, which, which, he, which he hadn't done. And then Alan Pakula's idea was to condense the action into one year instead of three, which, which also, so it gave him very, very good parameters. And he loved the book. He and Harper Lee became lifelong, dear, dear, dear friends. And he felt he really understood the material. But if you think about the movie, it's really about taking things away from the story. I mean, he took characters and, uh, away and then condensed the action and put it in the courtroom. You thought about what that must have, it, how hard it must have been. Yes, yeah. to, to yeah. decide what had to go well, from that. Yeah, and there's there's a very long interview um, Alan Pakula did because they had that incredible scene with, they filmed this incredible scene with Mrs. Dubose, who was the Confederate widow who gets off morphine, and Jem reads to her, and it's just this, and and that that's where Atticus delivers a line about that's bravery that y you start even when you know you're licked you go ahead and do it anyway and of course you can think about the court case when you're thinking about Mrs. DuBose but they they had this woman you know in all the makeup and they spent hours doing it and Alan Pakula said it was you know he practically wept when he had to leave it on the huh. cutting room floor so they did a lot of I mean clearly they had more characters in that they ended up taking out even in the final version. I, I want to leave plenty of time for the audience question and answer, so if the ushers would like to go around and collect some of the questions from the audience, we'll continue our conversation, but then we'll get to the, the questions. Tell me what John Meacham talked to you about, because he's met Harper Lee, right? He, he met um, Miss Lee, as he calls her. Um, jo you know, John Meacham grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he went to Swanee University of the South, and that's where he met Harper Lee. She got, she came for some kind of event at college, at the college, and uh, he said that she was just incredibly shy and polite and unassuming, which of course made it even more incredible. Yeah, <laughs> to meet her. So, yeah. does he speculate about why there was no? second or third or fourth or whatever novel? No, he, I mean, he, he, he called it, as John Meacham, only John Meacham would, he called it one of the great details of American literature, that you write this incredible novel and then you just stop. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, Hemingway said most, most people only have one story to tell. The 
critic Leslie Fiedler once said, most people only have one book in them. They usually write seven or eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it, it doesn't the story go though that she started a, a second novel and gave up, or is that just just well, rumor? Um, there's 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 evidence that she did research. The people I interviewed said she definitely did research on a second novel. Um, her sister Alice said that she was writing smaller things, thinking maybe she'd put them together, but she never put her, this, this is Alice's quote, she never put herself under the burden that she did when she was writing Mockingbird. I know from- Meaning, in, meaning what? That she didn't really hunker down, I think. And I know from two, she has two very close friends who lived in New York, uh, Joy and Michael Brown, who um, gave her one Christmas the money to quit her airline reservation job um, so she could write for a full year. And Joy and Michael um, say that, you know, she had plans. She had plans for quite a few other projects, but, you know, it, but, but to write a major masterpiece your first time out makes it very, very difficult to follow up. I'm not sure our, our listeners know that story, though. She moves to New... About oh. what happens as she's writing. She oh. moves to New York. Har Harper Lee moved to New York around 1948, which is around when Truman Capote, who was, by the way, her next-door neighbor and childhood friend in Monroeville, Alabama, he's moved to New York. He's published Other Voices, Other Rooms. She quits her uh, law studies in, at the University of Alabama and moves to New York, where she gets a job as an airline ticket reservationist. And she does this for about eight years and she's she through Truman met Michael Brown who was a writer and a composer who subsequently married this gorgeous Balanchine ballerina and they had a couple of sons and lived in a brownstone and they and Harper Lee would drop by all the time and they were just very old very great dear friends and and Joy I did an interview with Joy and Michael and Joy said you know we knew she wasn't going to be an airline reservationist you know <laughs> She was, or a waitress, or whatever it is you are while you're on your way to becoming something else. And so Michael did a little show and got paid for it, and they thought, let's give her some money so she doesn't have to work all the time. They had read her stuff. They'd read her character sketches. They thought she was just brilliant, and they loved it. And they thought if she just had a little time off, maybe she could you know, get, get somewhere. And of course, that's exactly what happened. She had five short stories. She took them to an agent. The agent helped her shape them into a novel. And then the novel went to Lippincott. But then that editor spent two more years with Harper Lee, you know, really getting the novel to, to what it could be. So. so if you'd had five minutes, if she had said, yes, on the anniversary of the publication, I will grant Mary five minutes, what would have been the, the question? I, I think, thought about that. Well, I think it's what we talked about earlier is, I, uh, one of the things I would ask her is how 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 much were you thinking about race when you when you wrote the novel, um, and you know, I, I, and of course a few other things, but <laughs> <laughs> but you only have five minutes, right, so right. let's take some questions from the audience. Um, would the book have remained as popular if the movie? hadn't been as successful and as good? That's a very, you know, it's a very interesting question because um, the book comes out in 1960 and, you know, there's, and, and its impact on the civil rights movement can't really be underestimated. I mean, and, and there were very, the, in 60, there were 
you know, think about it. There, the pro lunch counter protests. There was just that was just beginning. There wasn't downtown Birmingham. Wasn't the hoses, the police dogs. There, there wasn't the full-on civil rights movement. But by the time the movie came out, it really had rode the wave of the civil rights movement. It pricked the national consciousness. So, it definitely amplified the novel. However, so I think yes, that that gave it a new kind of a new wave and a new life. However, it had already sold six million copies and won the Pulitzer by the time the movie came out. So it's hard, it's hard to judge. But I do think that, that the movie, everyone thinks of the movie as having a greater emphasis on civil rights. Um, and it's because of the times in which it came out. So yeah, I think probably it would have endured, but maybe not to the tune of 50 million copies the way it has now. Um, could this have been written by anyone but a Southern woman? Pro probably, I, 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 although I don't, you know, it's so hard to think about it that way. I mean, I think the fact that it was a Southerner, a, a woman from the Deep South who wrote this book was, was what gave people in the Civil Rights Movement quite a lot of comfort. Um, I think because, I think because it was written by a woman and because it was told through the eyes of a child, that made a big difference. It was better than any speech or treatise in terms of making people think about it. The Truman Capote rumor has come up here. Is there any truth to the rumor that Truman Capote wrote much of the book? No. Right? Uh, no. That, okay, yes. No. <laughs> um, that is that is an untraceable, persistent rumor that uh, comes up uh, time and time again. Truman Capote, of course, could have denied it, and you know, uh, you know, he didn't help by by not denying it. There's a greater case to be made that Harper Lee had more to do with the way in cold blood, the writing of In Cold Blood, than Truman Capote did with To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and, and that's because she, she helped she, him research She was it, his right? research assistant. If you go to the New York Public Library and look up the notes from the Truman Capote papers every day, Nell Harper Lee typed up the notes of the, and, the, and you know, added her own novelistic eye to the proceedings. And so you can read those and then look it in cold blood and see some descriptions that are not verbatim, but you know, they're, they're pretty close. This, I, th I think the story of that friendship is really tragic. It's, it's a, um, yeah, it, 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 if you look at pictures of Truman Capote, um, there are no pictures that I've seen of Harper Lee at that age, but you know, here's Truman Capote, this just adorable, darling young boy who, and the, and the two of them together, I, I mean, if you go to Monroeville, it's, it's a piece of dirt now where the, and the two houses were there and the, and the stone wall is in the middle and there were these two kids who probably weren't like anyone else in their town in terms of their observational powers, their, their, what they thought about, what they cared about. And Mr. Lee, uh, Harper Lee's father, was the editor of the local newspaper for a time and he brought home an Underwood typewriter and the two of them shared this old beat up typewriter. And, and people in town say you would see Truman sitting and typing while you know, Nell walked around dictating or Nell, you know, Nell typing and Truman walking around dictating. And so it was this very, very close friendship. And of course, um, by the time To Kill a Mockingbird had won the Pulitzer, 
according to Miss Alice, Truman Capote was just too insanely jealous to continue his friendship with his with his dear childhood friend. And again, as you say, he could have put those rumors yes, to bed very early on. And, on any um, Dick Cavett show that he appeared on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this. Uh, Listener says, you interviewed journalists, novelists, musicians. How did you decide who you wanted to uh, interview, and did you interview some critics? Um, I tried to interview Thomas Mellon, the critic who was in The New Yorker, but um, by the time I got to him, his hate mail had piled up really considerably from The <laughs> New Yorker piece, and he said he didn't want to be the skunk anymore at that garden party. So, um, but uh, I, d I actually didn't, really want to talk to critics that much because they're going to be critical. They're going to think critically about it. And I wanted to talk to people whose experience of the novel had shaped their lives or careers. Um, I did, I had a sort of method about who I wanted. I, I had a list of people I targeted. You know, I, I knew I wanted a civil rights leader. I knew I needed Diane McWhorter who had written that Pulitzer Prize winning history of Birmingham, Alabama. I knew I wanted to talk to some school teachers. I knew Oprah had said no less than 400 times it was her favorite novel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then of course I had to call her 400 times to see if she Did would. you? <laughs> well, no, it wasn't 400, <laughs> but it was. Um, and so I had, I had sort of people I contacted and people I was interested in talking to, people I thought, I mean, James McBride was really a hunch of mine just from reading yeah. um, The Color of Water and that worked out beautifully. Um, and some people, some was just absolute serendipity. I mean, I went to a book convention in order to interview Lee Smith, the novelist who wrote Lost Girls and 11 other novels, um, and Alan Gerganis, two Southerners who both I knew had something to say uh, about To Kill a Mockingbird. And in the course of being at that book convention, I ran into Mark Childress, whose novel, I, I only knew one of his novels, but you know, quickly discovered that he had read To Kill a Mockingbird on a porch two doors away from Miss Nell Harper Lee's house because Mark was from Monroeville, Alabama. And he said, reading To Kill a Mockingbird in that setting and seeing his town transform so magically is really what is the reason he's a writer. So he w that was just a wonderful interview that I, that I happened on. Here's another question. Um, the audience tonight is a very Caucasian group. I guess that's true. Um, are black people not as enamored with the book? I think that um, uh, some criticize it for many of the reasons that we discussed when we were talking about James McBride, that the, you know, Calpurnia is a housekeeper. What, yeah, well, what are, who are her kids? What are their names? Where, where, where are they? Um, and, and the Robinson family is not a fully, completely rounded, um, you know, developed set of characters. Um, but, but I think that, again, um, so, so that's one kind of criticism. There's a criticism that says we don't really, there's a lot of criticism about the use, the language. Um, you know, Scout uses the N-word very glibly because it's sort of out there in the 30s. And that's I presume that's how it was. Yeah, it is how it was, just in the same way Huck, that's how it was in Huck Finn. Um, and then there, you know, and again, then there are the James McBrides who also say sophisticated novel about race at a time when there weren't any other. So 
It cuts both ways. I think this is a good question to, to close with. What moments in the book moved you the most? Um, well, uh, I have my own personal atticus. My, so, so uh, and, and, you know, my father's a big hero of mine. So, you know, stand up, Miss Jean Louise, your father's passing gets me every time. Um, but I also really love, I love when Scout turns away the lynch mob. And I, and I also just love some other smaller bits of Scout where, where she says things like, a geological age past, you know? I mean, she's just so funny. So, and her, and the way she talks about school and how much she hates it, I mean, and, and, and rebelling against Anne Alexandra and the add a pearl necklace and having to wear a dress. And anyway, I, I mean, th those are some of them. They're certainly not all. So. How many more times do you think you'll read the novel in your life? I have two 10-year-old kids, and so I'm really looking forward to with them reading it, you know, and being and reading it again when they do. And at what point do you think they're ready for that? 13, 14. Although my son, who <clears throat> whose room was across from my home office, if ever he couldn't sleep and he came and found me at my desk, he'd come in and go, Mom, are you done killing a mockingbird? <laughs> <laughs> Mary, this has been a real pleasure. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thank you here. all for coming tonight. It's good to have you here. Thank you all for being with us tonight to Kill a Mockingbird, the first great book I shared with my children. So it was um, really a treat to hear this conversation tonight. Please join us for a reception in the Great Hall. The books are being sold out this door here to your left. Um, please stop by. Again, Mary will be available to sign those books. Uh, again, we will see you on October 14th at noon when our guest speaker will be Vice President Walter Mondale. Have a great night, everybody.